Father in heaven, oh, what a blessing it is to come together as your people to worship you this morning. And we pray that the love of Jesus would pervade in our hearts today through the Holy Spirit. Grant us your peace that passes all understanding. Lord, you know the week that we've had, whether challenges or blessings, all the same, and we pray that you would help us as we pause for a few moments to reflect on your word. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, today we are continuing in our eight-part series of messages entitled Lessons from the Life of Daniel, and today is part six in that series of messages, and this series is going through the eight stories in the book of Daniel, and as we noted, the book of Daniel has two different genres, end-time prophecies and stories. For this sermon series, we'll be focusing on the stories, and of the eight stories, six reveal characteristics that we are to seek to emulate as the prophecies are being fulfilled, and two reveal characteristics that we are to seek to avoid as the prophecies are being fulfilled. And today's story is one of the characteristics that we are to seek to emulate as the prophecies are being fulfilled. As we noted in an earlier presentation, we looked at the whole book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is only 12 chapters, and it's structured in what we call a chiastic structure, which means for all practical purposes that some chapters are parallels of other chapters. You can see on the screen there, there's two ways of looking at the chiastic structure. Chapter one is an introduction. And then chapter 2, you can see parallels chapter 7, chapter 3 parallels chapter 6, and chapter 4 parallels chapter 5. For today's study, we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 6, and you'll note that Daniel chapter 6 parallels Daniel chapter 3. Now remember, Daniel chapter 3 was the story of the fiery furnace, Daniel chapter 6 is Daniel in the lion's den. And these are parallel because they have similar themes that emerge. In both stories, worship is a central issue. In Daniel chapter 3, you were told to worship the image, and if you did not, you were cast into the fiery furnace. And in Daniel chapter 6, you worship the king, and if you don't, you are fed to hungry lions. So the themes are similar. And then you look in the book of Revelation, and this theme emerges again. We read from Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, when we did our study on Daniel chapter 3. It says, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that both the image of the beast should speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this is a prophetic um, forecast of what's going to take place before Jesus comes. Again, there's worship that is a central issue, and those that do not worship the beast or his image are going to be killed. Same theme as Daniel 3, same theme as Daniel 6 is going to be repeated before Jesus comes the second time. Now, open your Bibles for the sake of our study today to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Now, a few weeks before we began our Daniel series, we touched on Daniel 6 when we talked about 
devotions and the importance of your personal time with God. And today, we're going to be focusing on a, another theme that emerges from the book of Daniel. Daniel at this time is around 80 years of age, over 80 years of age. He's a senior citizen, a statesman, and there has been a regime change from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel's character is so stellar that the king of the new administration decides to place him second in command. And this causes a lot of jealousy, and so they do a background check on Daniel. The other officials do. There's an extreme vetting that takes place. They check all of his taxes, and he pays all of his taxes. He's got no skeletons in the closet, and the only thing they can find wrong with him, it's actually very right about him, was his prayer life. So they go to the king with flattery and say, King, you're a, a wonderful king. You deserve worship. And uh, they said, why don't we make a decree that for 30 days they only worship you? And if they don't, they'll be cast into a den of lions. And so he said, I think that's a great idea. So the decree goes forth, and let's pick it up in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as his custom was. Daniel knew that the moment that he kneeled down, he was likely signing his death sentence. That's a lot of pressure. Some of you are very familiar with this story and they go and get his arrest warrant. The Medo-Persian SWAT team is commissioned and they go in there and lead Daniel away in handcuffs and they throw him into the den of lions. You can just imagine what that must have been like. They close the door and if I were Daniel, I'd just be waiting for that big 400 pound cat to just lock his jaws into my jugular vein. Oh my, I just can't imagine. And so just pausing in that silence, because you don't know, remember in Daniel chapter three, the three Hebrews said, God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down in worship. So Daniel had no guarantees. He's waiting there, it's dark, and the Bible tells us that an angel came into that lion's den. I wonder what that must have been like and closed the lion's mouth. And uh, it's amazing what you can find online. That's, that's an angry lion, and the lions go from this to this. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's the story. I mean, just remarkable. An angel comes down, and it just goes from, like, pure anger and hunger to, to just amazing, um, like a golden retriever. <laughs> and uh, this is one artist's depiction of Daniel hanging out with the lions there and Daniel's life was spared. Amazing story. Our key text today, our text of reflection is found in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, the one we just read, and I've highlighted this word in your study guide. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as his custom was since his early days. Here's the key point that I want to bring out from this verse. Daniel's prayer life was so important 
that it was worth dying for. Daniel's prayer life was so important that it was worth dying for. Why was it so essential? Now, if I do a little bit of reflection on my own prayer life, and I think, why is it sometimes I miss my prayers? Or my prayers are kind of, you know, take it to go kind of thing. Lord, bless me today, and you're out the door. And, uh, but, but here we see that Daniel's life, in Daniel's life, his prayer life was such a high priority that he would rather die than miss his time with God. His prayer life was of preeminent importance. It was so high of a priority that he was willing to be eaten by lions rather than miss his time with God. I just finished a book. Highly recommend it. I don't get any kickbacks from this. This is entitled Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. And in the book, it was talking about a husband-wife couple that they were having uh, some marital problems. And the wife was always wanting to talk about their relationship all the time. And he just could not understand it, being your typical man, I guess. And he said, I don't understand this. This is so inefficient. Why do we always have to be talking about our relationship? And why can't we just talk about our relationship one huge time and then not talk about it until the next year? Just have an annual relationship talk. But she wanted to talk about it all the time. And then the light bulb went off in his head, and this is what he said. This ongoing conversation I have been having with my wife is not about the relationship. The conversation is the relationship. The conversation is the relationship. There's moments when I'm reading a book, I just have to put it down and ponder that point a little bit more. That one sentence just blew my mind, being a typical male. <laughs> the conversation is the relationship. I think many times of relationship in these ethereal, conceptual terms of relationality and relationship, but when you boil it down, relationship is conversation. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that just went south? Come on now. It just like took off, maybe okay, but just crashed and burned like and then you walk out of there and there's like no resolution, there's tension, there, there's no way of coming out of this, it just spun out of control, a terrible conversation. What's it like the next time you see that person? Peachy? What's your relationship like? Ice, right? Maybe they avoid you, avoid eye contact, dart into another room, or you can see the flames of fire coming out of their eyes, depending on the type of personality. So, so have you ever had a conversation go really well? Openness, authenticity, vulnerability, sharing, trust. What's it like the next time you see that person? Ah, it's like roses and sunshine, right? And this idea of conversation 
equaling relationship is really, to me, a, such a profound thought. And uh, the, art, the, the book goes on, our lives succeed or fail gradually, then suddenly, one conversation at a time. While no single conversation is guaranteed to change the trajectory of a career, a business, a marriage, or a life, any single conversation can. The conversation is the relationship. Just as a side note here, is there a conversation with someone that you know you need to have, but you've been avoiding because of fear of the consequences. There's an elephant in the room. No one wants to talk about it. Maybe it's with your husband, your wife, your daughter, some family member, and you skirt around the issue. You have this careful conversation. And the book brought out all of the things that you fear, the consequences of what's going to happen, are likely going to happen if you don't have the conversation. So you might as well have the courage to, in a loving way, have that conversation because conversation is relationship. Now going back to prayer, what do you think prayer is? It's conversation. According to Steps to Christ, prayer is talking to God as to a friend. That's where prayer is is having a conversation with God. So here's our key thought in your study guide. Prayer is conversation. Prayer is talking to God as to a friend. It's sharing your heart. It's, it's communing with Him. Conversation is relationship. And then we come to prayer is relationship. Remember in geometry, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Well, here's the equation here. Prayer is conversation. Conversation is relationship. Prayer is relationship. Why was Daniel not willing to give up his prayer life even at the expense of being eaten by lions? It's because his prayer life was his relationship with God. And he would rather die than give up his relationship. How's your prayer life? today. How is your relationship with God? We hear that many times. It's all about a relationship with God. I believe that. But practically speaking, do you talk to Him? Do you have a conversation with Him? It's very difficult, if not impossible, to have a conversation with someone or to have a relationship with someone that you never, ever talk to. You don't have a, a relationship. You, you have an acquaintance that you see every once in a while. So prayer is relationship. Prayer is so foundational to your relationship with God that you take away that conversation, you take away the relationship. So very quickly in your study guide, how essential is prayer to our spiritual life? This is from the book on prayer. Prayer is the breath of the soul, the secret of spiritual power. Using a metaphor of prayer, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. 
Breathing is so essential to our physical life that your body, or I should say a part of your brain, is tasked with doing it automatically. Can you imagine what it would be like to always consciously think in order to breathe? Can you imagine, I forgot to breathe for the last five minutes, you know, oops, you know, and, and people would be dying. I mean, breathing is, is so foundational to, to living that God knew when he created us that it would have to be something that is automatic, something that is done just without our consciousness or, or else we wouldn't be able to sleep. Prayer is as essential to spiritual life as breathing is to physical life. Think about the implications of that. I, I can't imagine, but sometimes I think that in our discipleship, we teach people that once they're baptized, that's it. You don't have to breathe anymore. Can you imagine? A baby's born physically, and the baby's told, oh, you're good now, you're born, you don't have to breathe. You don't have to breathe anymore. There's one thing about being born, there's another thing about staying alive, and prayer is that lifeline to keep us continually connected to God. Prayer is also essential for keeping our thoughts holy. We may close the door to impure imaginings and unholy thoughts by lifting the soul into the presence of God through sincere prayer. Do you struggle with evil thoughts, impure thoughts? Prayer is the solution. You can replace the thought with prayer and scripture. Many of these quotations I'll be taking from the book Steps to Christ, and if you have not read that book, highly recommend it. Um, there's a whole chapter entitled The Privilege of Prayer, and this book has changed lives. I, I'll have an entire case there in the foyer, so you can take as many as you're willing to share. Um, why should I pray if God already knows? Have you ever wondered that? It's not as though we pray and God's like, oh, thank you for sharing that with me. I didn't know. Um, God already knows. It's not like um, we're informing him. And some people have asked, look, I'm not going to pray. He knows. He knows already. I mean, why should I go through the trouble of prayer? And this is from the book Steps to Christ again, page 93. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are. In other words, it's not that we inform God but in order to enable us to receive him. Important principle of prayer. In other words, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. There's something about the posture of prayer that realizes, that helps me to realize, like, look, I'm mortal. I'm human. I mean, why, why should I pray if I have all the answers? Why should I pray if I have all the power? But the very posture of prayer indicates, look, I need help. And God's like, okay, I'll help you but you can't help a cancer patient that doesn't know they have cancer. You can't force somebody. God's not in the business of forcing. When should I pray? This is a good one uh, from Steps to Christ. Consecrate yourself to God when? In the morning. Make this your very first work. Let your prayer be, take me, O Lord, as wholly thine. I lay all my plans at thy feet. Use me today in thy service. Abide with me and let all my work be wrought in thee. This is a daily matter. Each morning, consecrate yourself to God for that day. Surrender all your plans to him to be carried out 
or to be given up as his providence shall indicate. Thus, day by day, you may be giving your life into the hands of God, and thus your life will be molded more and more after the life of Christ. So when you get up in the morning, the first thing you should do is this prayer, consecrating yourself to God for that day. And you say, Lord, I'm yours. I give you permission to intervene in my life today. And this is a daily matter. And there's something about the morning that keeps us from having the cares of this life just crowd in. Uh, there's, I don't know what time it is, but it seems like between 7.30 and 8, uh, in that window, it seems like just all of the cares of this life just seem to encroach on your day. And uh, there's, there's a reason why very successful individuals get up early in the morning. I read an article on Jeff Bezos, the CEO and founder of Amazon. His company just crossed the $1 trillion mark. Uh, extremely successful man. And uh, I just got this uncomfortable feeling when I looked at what time he got up in the morning. He gets up at 4 a.m. every single day. And the article chronicled his daily life, and he gets up at 4 a.m., and he makes no important decisions after 6 p.m., and he's in bed by 8. I mean, he's a billionaire. He can afford to do that. Um, but 4 a.m., and he says that this is the time that he gets his most creative ideas. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, gets up at 3.45 a.m., 3.45, and in that time, he, he is the most creative. He gets the most work done, and this is from Harvard biologist Christoph Randler. When it comes to business success, morning people hold the important cards. My earlier research showed that they tend to get better grades in school, which get them into better colleges, which then lead to better job opportunities. Morning people also anticipate problems and try to minimize them. They're proactive. A number of studies have linked this trait, proactivity, with better job performance, greater career success, and higher wages. I read that, I was like, ouch, man. And so we look at individuals that, for business reasons, are getting up at incredibly early hours of the morning, 3.45, 4 a.m., and you look at the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, now in the morning, and just so you don't misunderstand this to be 9 a.m., the gospel writer says, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, my point is not you have to get up at 4 a.m., my point is simply this. If you want to get your morning manna, remember the manna, it melted once the sun came up, and there's some illustrations that we can draw from that. 
Find a time in the morning before the crowding of the cares of this life seem to impose on your day. Find that quiet time, whatever time it may be. Now, you may have different schedules. I understand that as far as working nights and so forth. But find the time during your day that is not encroached by the cares of this life. Carve it out. Guard that time and spend it in conversation with God. Make dialogue with God a priority. Jesus did, and there's something about that morning time that frames the rest of your day, the morning prayer. Not only in the morning is prayer essential, but all throughout the day. This is from Steps of Christ, page 99. There is no time or place in which it is inappropriate to offer up a petition to God. There is nothing that can prevent us from lifting up our hearts in the spirit of earnest prayer, in the crowds of the street, in the midst of a business engagement, we may send up a petition to God and plead for divine guidance. A closet of communion may be found wherever we are. The beauty of prayer is that in any moment, you're in a, let's say you're in a business transaction. Let's say you're in an important meeting and you need help. You can silently talk to God. Whisper a prayer in your mind and say, Lord, I need help going to this meeting. You're going to have a very difficult conversation with somebody. Say, Lord, I need the words to speak. I, I don't know how this is going to go down. Please help me. You can pray to God at any time. The beauty of prayer. So how should I pray? Uh, as we noted earlier, prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. I used to think that Prayers had to be this formal type of conversation. Now, I'm not saying that our prayers should be disrespectful, but I believe that our prayers should be intimate. If I went to my earthly father, my biological father, and said, O oh, thou that providest a home for me, he'd be like, what's the matter with you, son? You know, it just, it's, that's just, uh, and sometimes we can talk to God in a way that is real fakey and inauthentic. It's not like he doesn't know, and, you know, sometimes I have to catch myself because I go through, like, this rigor of rituals of prayer. I say the same thing, and after a while, it just starts losing authenticity and intimacy, but, but God wants to know your heart, and he loves to have us go to him and say, Lord, I had a tough day today. Um, this person spoke to me in a certain way and it really hurt, and I'm struggling. Um, Lord, I've got a huge problem. I mean, talk about intimacy. I mean, you don't talk to anyone like that. You talk to people that are safe. Well, God is safe. Um, what should I tell him? This is beautiful from Steps to Christ. Keep your wants, your sorrows, your cares, your joys, and fears before God, and the quotation goes on, you cannot burden him. God's never going to come to the place when he says, look, uh, I need a break now because I can't handle this anymore. I need to, like, I need to get counseling myself because you just dumped this on me, and man, this is too much. God will never come to that place, and he's always listening. You can tell him everything, all of your problems. Now, many people have asked this question, look, I prayed and prayed for 20 years, and God just doesn't answer my prayers. I might as well give up. 
From that same chapter in the book Steps of Christ, page 96, it says, when our prayers seem not to be answered, we are to cling to the promise, for the time of answering will surely come and we shall receive the blessing we need most. But to claim that prayer will always be answered in the way and for the particular thing that we desire is presumption. Now, there are certain prayers that we can always pray and know it's God's will. But if I ask for a Ferrari, it may not be. So there are different categories, and there are certain prayers that are always yes prayers. And those yes prayers are particularly, particularly when it comes to spiritual blessing. Now, I'm all about praying for physical blessing, and the Lord tells us that we should pray for those. But sometimes I wonder whether we get so caught up in the physical that we forget that God has a whole host of spiritual blessings that he's just willing to pour down on us. What are those spiritual blessings? Um, I think I had it here. Oh, did I leave that one out? Well, anyways, it is this one. This is from Acts of the Apostles, 565. Prayer is heaven's ordained means of success in conflict with sin and the development of character. The divine influences that come in answer to the prayer of faith will accomplish in the soul of the suppliant all for which he pleads. And listen to this part. Uh, I've highlighted this many times. For pardon of sin, what's that? Forgiveness. For the Holy Spirit, for a Christ-like temper. How many of you want to be more like Jesus? I do. For wisdom and strength to do his work, for any gift he has promised, you may ask, and the promise is, you shall receive. Think about that. In other words, these are always yes prayers. When you pray, Lord, I've got a temper, help me to be more like Jesus. God's not going to be like, oh, let me think about that one. It's always yes. It's always yes. Lord, I pray for forgiveness. Always yes. I pray for wisdom and strength to do your work. It is always yes. And you don't have to depend on your feelings. Your feelings come and go. You believe it because you believe that Jesus keeps his word. Amen? Amen. Uh, I was reading from this book by Roger Morneau. Many of you have read it, uh, The Incredible Power of Prayer. Uh, just inspiring book on the prayer life. And he talks about how he was uh, in the parking lot, and it was hot outside. And uh, so he rolled down his windows, and two spaces over next to him, another car uh, pulled up and they had their windows down and it was a husband-wife couple and they were in a heated argument. They were fighting with each other and uh, he was using a lot of profanity and so forth and they're just in this, in this argument and so he prays for them and says, Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to touch this couple's life and that they would have the sweet spirit of Jesus. True story. So he prays this prayer, and he said it was almost as if instantly they stopped arguing. And there was a moment of silence, and the husband said to his wife, "Um, I'm so sorry I spoke to you that way. And she says, well, I'm very sorry, too, for the way I've been talking. And then this was so startling to me because uh, I, I put the quote from the book on the screen. Stepping to the parking meter, the husband turned to the wife and said, sugar pie, 
Would you be so kind enough to look into your purse for a dime? And she responded, how can I, oops, tough typo, that was early in the morning, how can I refuse your help when you're treating me as a lady? Do you realize, Jim, that you haven't called me sugar pie since the kids were little? And he put the coins in the meter. She grabbed him by the arm, and like two newlyweds, they proceeded to do some shopping. I mean, this book is remarkable. I mean, just... Now, this is not to say that every time you pray, it goes like this, but this brings up an important point that he uh, elaborates on more, and this is from Roger Morneau, and I knew exactly where to find the power to help such people in prayer and supplication to God who waits for our requests for help so that he will have the legal right in the sight of the universe to move with power into Satan's domain and rescue his captives. There are rules in the great controversy, and one of the fundamental rules is choice, free will. God is not going to break His way into your life. When we, what do we call love that is forced? We call it rape, and God does not force. So, foundationally, one of the most powerful prayers that you can pray for yourself is, Lord, I give you permission to work in my life. And you can move. And on a certain level, when we pray in terms of intercessory prayer, when you pray for someone else, in terms of the great controversy, you're giving God authorization to move in a person's life beyond what he would normally be able, not because he's not capable, but because of this foundational element of permission and choice and free will. We can pray for ourselves and we can pray for others, and it gives God authorization to move in someone else's life. Last but not least, a couple quotes in your study guide that have just been so uh, faith-building for me. This is from Steps to Christ, page 93, 94. Prayer is the key in the hand of faith to unlock heaven's storehouse where are treasured the, what does it say? The boundless, limitless resources of omnipotence. Look at what God has in store. And what he's waiting for is, is our permission. Here is the last but not least quote. Our Heavenly Father, what is that word up there? Waits to bestow upon us the fullness of his blessing. He has so many blessings, spiritual and physical blessings, that he wants to pour out on us individually and corporately, but he needs our permission. He's not going to force his way in. He wants our consent. He wants us to say, Lord, please. We don't have to say please. We just say yes. (laughs) We just say yes, Lord. I invite you into my life, into my heart. And how many of you today want to say, Lord, I want to give my consent? Amen. Amen? I want to give my permission. I want to give you authorization in my life. I want to give my choice and exercise my free will today.
praise his name. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you that you're a God that does not force his way into our lives and that you have given us free will. And we pray that daily you would help us to exercise this gift to say, yes, Lord, please intervene in my life and the life of our loved ones. So we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.